the RTE Rugby World Cup podcast, sponsored by Bank of Ireland. Hello and welcome along to the RTE Rugby World Cup podcast and it's now business time at the tournament. The pool stage is complete. Quarterfinals weekend coming up. Ireland against New Zealand this Saturday night at Stade de France, 8pm. That quarterfinal spot secured for Ireland after a 36-14 win against Scotland in Paris at the weekend. Johnny Holland and Mick Carney are with me today and we're going to start by pouring over that win against Scotland. We'll get straight into it. Johnny, 36-14. And a scoreline that probably doesn't actually do justice really to how one sided the game was. Yeah, it was finished like, wasn't it? I uh you'd actually get bored, which was a, a funny thing to say about a, a kind of a knockout game, like wasn't it? But um yeah, I think Ireland were were incredibly good, obviously. But people are kind of saying, and I've seen people say, um, hearsay, but like, you know, oh Scotland didn't turn up. Scotland absolutely turned up. You know, in the first twenty minutes they turned up, but Ireland absolutely shut them down, you know. So I think it was a. Uh, it was so so impressive because at the start of the game in Scotland were trying to get out Ireland's ball and and they knew that they had to do that. Obviously, their selection reflected that a little bit as well, and they they went hard at Ireland's ball, like they they went at every breakdown, and you know it didn't take Ireland long to to shut them out or or to get past them. But um, but Scotland went at them again, and Ireland just did the same thing and got past them again, you know, in very quick succession. So like, I think they were. I think they, they they really went at it. I, I think the problem was, you know, they got the, the opportunity to score three points and it was like clear show of intent that they were going to try and get their points early. But like, I think hindsight, obviously, but at the time I was thinking, oh, I don't know, go 3-0, put a bit of doubt into Ireland and the doubt is, was going to be more powerful. Than, and yeah, you can get doubt from the corners of it. I think easy three points, get back, exit and go again and put them under pressure. I thought that was the way to go, build the scoreboard pressure. But um, I think the, the 18th phase defence was the one that you know, broke them and, and Ireland drove on. Yeah, and Mick, that that was what I was going to lead to, that for her, as much as Ireland scored six brilliant tries and some of the attacking stuff they put in was really, really enjoyable to watch, it did even feel, I was there on Saturday and it felt like in the moment on whatever, kind of 13, 14 minutes when they had that defensive stand after 18 phases, it actually felt there and then, even though it was 5-0, that the, the game was over. Like, Scotland had gone three lineouts down into the twenty-two. On two of them, they had tried to tried to maul their way through Ireland and just literally did not budge. Then they go out into the phases. They go backwards from the five-meter line to the edge of the twenty-two through eighteen phases, and backwards on a lot of those phases as well. And there was just this this shift and this reaction, and you could see it in the body language of the players. The Irish players really egged on the celebrations after it. The Scotland players looked dejected and it was no surprise that a scrum penalty followed instantly. And honestly, in the moment, it just felt there's there's no way Scotland are going to win this game. Yeah, huge moment in the game. Like, as you said, you, you could see from the Scottish players' body language, it, it really did just suck the life out of them. Um, Ireland's ability to, to be effective at the breakdown, whether that be slowing it down or making a good decision around the barge, um, I just thought was was unbelievably impressive. Very similar to what they did against South Africa. Like it was it was seven turnovers uh, to Ireland versus Scotland's three. Um, in terms of actual turnover penalties. Um, but but the impact that I think uh Ireland were able to have on Scotland's rook speed in terms of the collision and what what they did around the contact area. Um, it it just it it stymied it stymied Scotland's play for the rest of the game. Um excluding obviously 
that that 20 phase 20 phase set that they had against Ireland in, in the first 20 minutes or whatever it was. Yeah, and they, they just looked perfectly comfortable to Ireland, I'm saying now, looked perfectly comfortable to just defend for those phases and wait for the opportunity to to make the turnover. When if you put yourself back into playing days and from both sides of this, first of all, when you're a defender and you're on that side and you get that sort of a defensive stop on a turnover, and also when you're an attacking team and you just feel yourself going backwards, 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 backwards through all these phases until the point where you just turn over the ball. It must be an incredibly demoralizing feeling being on that attacking side and knowing, just feeling like you're ultimately running into a wall. Oh, for sure. And, you know, when a team, just just going back to the breakdown, I suppose, when, when a team is putting huge pressure on that breakdown area and you know that you're going to have to be incredibly effective in terms of your your entries and that kind of stuff um and then on on top of that you're losing you're losing collisions in the carry and you're in a position that that you want to hold on to the ball you know you want to be attacking you want to kind of be be meeting them meeting them on the game line and uh in a position to try and get your shoulders through so that like you might lose one collision you might kind of get a little bit of go for it on on the next one, and then you can you can have a crack at at spinning a wide. But Scotland were like they were losing repeated collisions. They were in an area of the pitch where they should be they should be holding on to the ball and they should be going through phases. Um, but but Ireland, Ireland were just they were squeezing them. They they were really suffocating them. Um. And you know, I'd imagine from from a Scottish point of view, particularly in attack, they were just thinking, "Oh my God, we're if if we've to go through, if we've to go through eighty minutes of this, and we're not getting penalties, um, and we can't we can't really kick the ball away because Ireland are very effective in terms of um that kind of that high ball battle. Um, it's going to be a very long day at the office, and and obviously that was the case for them. And Johnny, defense in general. Go ahead, yeah. Sorry, on that, Neil, just I, I think uh, you know the moment where they got that ball in the corner and uh, didn't go forward, and say on it, say only two Pilatu had his little run towards Sexton, which was clearly the direction he was yeah. going at, in the yeah. way that Josh Van der Fleer was trying to catch up with him, but Van der Fleer got him low, and Sexton didn't really budge up high, you know, and he they put him to ground. So that was one of their big ball carrying threats that didn't go forward because he's running across the pitch trying to force something. And then by the time they got to the edge where you said that on the five minute line they got driven back, it was Van der Merwe got got driven back, and then he's their second one to kind of pull a rabbit out of a hat in terms of contact. Um, so I think that that was like two big wins for Ireland, and that two of their big ball carriers didn't get it on their own terms. Their backs ball carriers, obviously, um, but I'm not sure about their ball carriers up front as well, like Jack Dempsey and these guys. Like it's you know they they don't have the same raw power. Like they look like they're doing those, but they're not really that effective if, if the whole team isn't on the front foot and you're not getting soft shoulders from their centres. But they didn't get that. And then I think like Ireland were you were saying there, but when we're back playing and things like, and you do feel sometimes when you're on when you're comfortable defensively, you don't really care if the opposition have the ball. And that's the kind of feeling you got from Ireland, doesn't it? I know like last year Munster didn't kick the ball off the pitch when they were going towards winning the URC, and you. You think like, oh, you, you have to get the ball off the pitch against the Stormers and Leinster and these these teams that are very effective in their attack, but they were just so comfortable defensively. And that's what it felt like with Ireland. They were so comfortable defensively. They didn't really care where it was. Normally, when a team enters your 22, you're like, oh, that's a that's a, a chance to get points and most teams will get points. You, you assume that they'll get something out of it. But Scotland didn't get it because Ireland, Ireland just stuck within their structures and they weren't going to be cracked. Like. And the 
one of the the running teams of conversation in the post-match press conference with Andy Farrell and, and Johnny Sexton was around defence. And like a couple of things Farrell said stood out. Obviously, number one, he said from speaking to so many people, everyone says it, defence is what wins World Cups ultimately. Um, And also as well, just speaking about how how much work they've been able to do over the last few months where, as he pointed out, in a normal situation during a, a Six Nations or an Autumn Nation series campaign, the players are coming back in a week or 10 days before the, the championship starts and you're trying to cram in a lot of work in a fairly short period of time. But Ireland have been together the guts of 16 weeks in training camp, uh, give or take a couple of weeks off that the players have had here or there. But ultimately, you're looking at three to four months of of solid work that they've been able to 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 put together and it's starting to show on the pitch like during the six nations they were it was a pretty good defense to begin with i think on average they were conceding 14 points a game they've conceded 22 points against south africa and scotland combined and realistically 14 of those points were against scotland when the game was pretty much decided anyway and you had gary ringrose and jameson gibson park playing out on the wings you know it was it was completely jointed at the same uh, disjointed at the same time but one thing that's really standing out Johnny as well is the height of the Irish tackles it was something that was highlighted against South Africa and I was kind of wondering was it going to be a bit of a one-off where they were consistently chopping down below the waist and across those 18 across the whole match against Scotland but in those 18 phases in particular Going back and looking at it last night, the amount of tackles that were just coming in low and just getting players to ground. And I think maybe the flip side is when you're in that position as the, uh, as the tackler, it probably Ireland allowed the Irish players an opportunity a couple of times to to roll their way over onto the opposition side and, and slow things down ever so slightly and just create a little bit of a mess there. But one person I did even want to point out in it there was Tyg Furlong and I... I looked back afterwards and he had, I think, 11 tackles, which is pr- pretty good numbers to begin with. But I reckon he must have had at least another 11 or 12 as a tackler assist that he wasn't getting credit for. Because the amount of times in the first half where I saw him swinging out of a tackle down low beneath someone's hips. And, and you know, this is a tight head prop who's consistently has the fitness now to be able to go in and make those tackles like they're. It's it's a very, very relentless effort and it's a difficult thing to do to constantly get down down that low and chop players down. Yeah, Ty Furlong's not really getting the plaudits at the moment at the moment, is he? Like he's just going under the radar doing a very good job as a tight head. You know, there was talk when he was fully fit that he was the best tight head in the world and you know, you can still talk about that. But he's not really the one that people are talking about within the performances. And if you have a tight head putting in that, that amount of work and you do have a fit Irish pack as it is and you're going to get through a, a whole host of work that way. But I think like you're, you're right in that the chop tackles came in and that that allows them to get after the breakdown a bit. But like I think chop tackling a team against Scotland is dangerous because you get them low and they're a good offloading side. They're, they've got a, a lot of spark and attack. So all of a sudden you open up those offloading, offloading channels. So if you don't get your strategy right, you know, you are actually going to run yourself into a small bit of bother because people will talk about kind of um, shutting those offloading channels in. But like that's not what Ireland did. They chopped tackle, but it was two-man tackles. And if you look at some modern defences now, like everything is a two-man tackle because you get two of them in there, the chop will roll away and uh, the person hitting high will detach and, and get after a breakdown. And that's pretty much what they did. They, they added time to the ball wherever they could because the assist tackler was in a very strong position, um, very well set. Like you said, they have so much time together. And the way Andy Farrell makes them get to know each other. I think that it, it felt like that when they were defending that they knew each other inside out. So that assist tackler is able to put time on the ball. Um, but then when you get someone like Caelan Doris, who's that assist tackler or anywhere around the breakdown, 
I don't think he gets half enough credit for what he does around the breakdown. He gets away with a small bit. He, uh, you see Ireland sometimes when they counter ruck, they they initiate the contact from a square position, but they kind of fall around it and they get legs falling everywhere. But it's it's very hard to referee that because they've they've come in from the right place, you know. But I think he doesn't get half enough credit. He's given away one or two penalties in the last two games from the post position where he uh, I can't remember why, but he definitely gave away one early in the in the Scotland game, and I think he had he, one as well. He, he gave away the he gave away the first one against Scotland. Yeah, and it, he normally doesn't, so I was surprised that he did. But he came back with a turnover near that they went yeah. and the murder. Uh, carry and he's just so so relentless at the break and he's really intelligent there as well if you watch his actions you can player cam him make you know a bit more about this but in around the tight player cam Caelan Doris and he's just doing like action after action disrupting people and he's so so hard to play against but Ireland are, are very intelligent around those areas as well like it's not by chance you know and Mick the um as Johnny pointed out the talking on lower tackles and there is obviously the risk that a team is able to offload that's something obviously to guard against against New Zealand because if there's one team who are perfectly comfortable shipping the ball out of a tackle, it's it's the All Blacks. No, definitely, definitely. That's that's where I think the All Blacks selection is going to be going to be very interesting. You know, in terms of who who they actually play, there's been a bit of chat this week as to whether whether Damian McKenzie is going to come into the mix or not. Um, see, Moonga's a huge threat around around the offload space as well, and then. You know, Rico, Rico Ioani, you think, is a dead cert to start at 13. But then, you know, like An- Anton Leonard-Brown, the games that they played recently, that they've that they've looked really good. He's he, he's had a big impact on those games. Um, but back to your point around around the offload channels, I think I think Ireland will have a good plan there. Um, a lot of I suppose a lot of Ireland's defense, as, as Johnny mentioned earlier on there, there's just guys making really good decisions. Um, as well as Johnny said, like every tackle, every tackle nowadays is is a two-man tackle. And you've one guy going low and one guy going on the ball to either hold it up and try and get that choke so that the the breakdown's gonna be that bit slower, or else he's he's throwing that man to ground and, and he's trying to trying to get in on the jackal or the barge. Um so you know, I, I'd imagine I'd imagine Ireland will have a pretty good plan around that this week. And as well, you know, if if you lose the collision, the rook speed and and the breakdown is is ruined anyway, and that's something that Ireland have done really well in this tournament so far. They've they've just been dominating collisions. Johnny, before we move on to the the Ireland attack on on Scotland, you you'd kind of mentioned at the time you were wondering should they have kicked a couple of those threes. When you look back at it now, how are you feeling? I know Gregor Townsend was asked afterwards about whether they should have taken the three six nine approach. Uh, during that first half, and he was pretty blunt about it. He kind of said, "We weren't winning the game. We weren't going to win the game like that." You know, with the way Ireland were playing, we we had to score tries. Um, I can kind of see that side of it. To be totally honest, looking back at it now with hindsight, uh, do you think it would have made much of a difference if Scotland were to have maybe on the first one of those penalties tagged on a three and see just just build a bit of pressure? Well, if the farm Ireland were in, I don't think it'd make any difference what yeah. they did. They weren't going to win that game regardless once Ireland turned up like that. I think Gregor Townsend in hindsight is is right about that, but I think the first one was important. I don't expect them to go three six nine twelve and then go for their try. You know, I don't think that would have worked. But I think you know scoring first, putting putting a marker down. Um, like I said, if you kick the first easy one, it's three 0 and Ireland are behind. You know, well f- five three because Ireland had had their five by that fair point. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. But did, did Scotland have a, a a chance before that? I'm not sure. They had the first chance, did they? No, 
No, no, it's your lowest okay. try was inside the first 60 seconds. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? But the, I think um, I think just getting something on the scoreboard is important mm-hmm. because you have to claw them back a small bit and I think you can just prove that you can score and it's on your own terms and you're not so desperate inside the 22. But that's easy for me to say when they've gone 18 phases and got shut out. You know, so it's, uh, yeah, I, I think whatever, whatever Scotland would have done at the time, <laughs> it, it's probably... Uh, a bit of a moot point because Ireland were in that form where they were just going to tear them asunder, you know. But, uh, yeah, I think uh, I think building some scoreboard pressure, I'd still be in favour of it. I know, like, you go down, go down the line, get your score, get out of there and, and get back in return again, then the, then the pressure's on. But, yeah, I'm not so sure. I'd like Obviously, they, they spent so much time on zero that it became a bit of a desperation station in here, didn't yeah. it? So that, that's never a good thing from a player's psyche looking up at. On the, on the side of the Irish attack then, this was where this was where it was really fun, particularly in that opening forty minutes. The first try, James Lowe, just sixty seconds more or less on the on the clock before the game last week uh, with Bernard Jackman on the pod. We were talking about how a fast start was something Ireland probably really really needed, just in general against Scotland because it's been a while since they had kind of like come out of the blocks really really hot in a big match. They ended up going doing it uh, last Saturday, but on that try, a uh, really interesting looking back I'm curious to get your thoughts Johnny for as like as an attack coach where um the the break that Gary Ringrose makes up the middle it's through a fairly soft shoulder in between Xander Fagerson and Grant Gilchrist and when you look back at it now it was it was Ringrose and the Irish the Irish back line essentially going up against four of the Scottish front five defending that line in in midfield and I'd be curious to to know when you look back at that, would you would you consider that Ireland being able to manipulate that situation to to pull players one side and create an environment where Scotland have a lot of tight five forwards defending wide spaces? Or is that Gary Ringrose in the moment spotting that there are a few of the heavies defending midfield and, and realising, OK, this is the moment where we can throw a little show and go and try go up the middle? Yeah, I've seen some analysis on this already this morning. Like, and I don't know, you can manipulate it to a degree and you'll see like coming out of a scrum, you'll always have the, the tight five together and the front three are always together. The, the amount of times you see front row in the middle of the pitch together is frightening, you know? So like you do see that picture quite a bit and obviously you try and get it back to, to kind of reload early and split that up and try and get a bit of organisation in the middle of the pitch. So I think in, in some situations of one or two phases, I think you can set it up, but I don't think you can set it up after multi-phase either. You know, I think that's just the way the rugby is played. I think what you're seeing there is that Ireland are actually just so good at looking up, scanning, seeing what's on. And and because they throw more passes, more of those kind of sweet passes at the back and move teams, you do get this kind of um, panic or you've less time as well. I think the speed of ball means that the Scotland have less time to actually get those front three or the front five split up. Like, you know, so I, I think it's just a, a bit of a function of how they're playing the game. And if you look at Johnny Sexton's eyes, he, the amount of decisions he makes is absolutely scary. Like, you know, my my soul time going up against him. I think that was the biggest learning that I had from him. You can't take your eyes off him. He was always making a decision. He was always dragging you away. Um, again, Mick, like you you know more about this, but he's always talking and looking up and moving people around the place. So he he's just a step ahead of of most defenses, or at least the defense that Scotland put it in front of them um, at the beginning. So no, I don't think they would have manipulated it knowing. I think that's going back to the Joe Schmidt era, where if you do this for the next three four phases, then you will get this. And what happened early in that time was that they didn't get those pictures or they didn't execute those pictures, didn't get front football. And when they didn't, you don't see the picture that you're being told you're going to see in three phases time. Whereas now I think they're actually making more decisions on the spot. 
and that's why they're finding these gaps. But like if you look at the late swing from Mac Hansen, which I know has been highlighted as well, um, he's on the open side with Johnny Sexton. And Johnny Sexton has decided to bring the the attack back the other way, and all he's doing is starting to, to set up those pad to three on on his left hand side. He didn't look at Mac Hansen and tell him to go, but obviously there's an understanding there that there's nothing there for Mac Hansen. So his late swing means that a defense that thinks they're kind of numbered up are now down a number at least, and uh, and he's popping up on the outside of Gary Ringrose, which, you know, people will think like, oh, Ringrose spotted that and got through the gap, but every time someone swings a defender's eye goes somewhere, you know, yeah. so it just gives them a second or two less to, to look at the person that's actually making that break. The same with the, the Bundyaki one, where someone's trying to read out the back and he took a soft shoulder, and it was Ali Price actually, got caught in kind of no man's land, and then he's chasing, um, chasing Gary Ringrose back, like, wasn't it? So I think... No, I think you're just seeing loads of good decisions and a lot of work rate off the ball and kind of swinging and overloading because Scotland actually swung all their backs at one stage. Again, that long passage of later we were talking about, and I was like, oh, this is, I thought it was dangerous. They had four or five of them swinging at the same time, but Ireland's structure came, was... Came down, the, came down the near side, was it that moment? Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. And like teams are doing that, where they're swinging all their backs at the same time now, and it's very dangerous, but, um, you know, they all went at the same time. They're all a little bit lateral, whereas Ireland were set up really square with their forwards and their pods, dragging passes from Johnny Sexton to the next back. And it's the likes of Mac Hansen getting all the way around, turning up on an outside shoulder that's really doing the damage. But I think there's loads of decisions being made on the spot. And the, the Irish forwards are making decisions. Like you can see them within those pods to three with the tip-ons and the carries and even inside passes, which are seen as kind of playing under and you'll create slow ball. They're doing it because it's the right decision, not just kind of changing it up for no reason. Like, you know, if there's a soft shoulder anywhere, they're taking it. Yeah. And, and make on that first try as well, like, brilliant stuff from the backs and Gary Ringrose to spot that spot that kind of hole in the middle and for Hansen looping around as well but then you also have the subtle stuff that forwards are doing and I don't know just spot like Tygburn in that just kind of straightening up his run ever so slightly and it slows down uh, George Turner from getting across and ultimately that creates an extra half a yard that Ringrose has in between Matt Fagerson and, and Grant Gilchrist and I presume as a as the the second and back row here, you'd uh, you'd be able to appreciate that. I know, hundred percent. Look, I think I think George Turner gets too high there anyway. Um, but you're you're spot on. It it results in Fagerson having to drop having to drop under uh George Turner, and he's just he he's never going to get there. You know, it's as Johnny mentioned there. It's a great decision by Gary to to show him go, and then Mac Mac Hansen swing is like he comes from a long way, but I think there's. There's obviously a collective understanding around the backs that if there's if they get to a fifteen and they're sweeping back, that those lads have to get on their bike, you know, because like th- the last thing that they want to have is that it's a tree tree in terms of the backs, like so tree on one side of the rock and tree on the other side. It, you you can actively see that they're trying to create, you know, four twos or five ones in terms of the the lads who are sitting on the blind side from a backs point of view coming around behind those those forward shapes and you know you could see even late in the game when uh Gibson Park was playing on the wing Sheen scored in the 63rd or 64th minute um and there's a rook like they actually spin it out to Gibson Park who makes a break up the right and he gets tackled they do one play back in and then Gibson Park is actually the one who gives the last pass to Sheen on the edge so like he gets up out of that rook bursts his bollocks to get around um Outside, I think Ringrose. I think Ringrose uh, throws it out the back to him. Bundy is in. He's in no man's land because he didn't realize that that Gibson Park was gonna get there that quickly. Then it ends up just going behind him to Sheen. Um. So 
you know, the 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 work rate and the effort from from these guys to put themselves in a position to be effective from an attacking point of view is 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 just unbelievable. And even you know the stuff that they're doing or that they did do against Scotland to to nullify their their line speed, as Johnny said, they're making the right decision in terms of inside passes and outside tips. But they they did they did a lot of that early in the game, so it meant that later on in the game it just checked that defender. He knew that he couldn't fly. He couldn't fly on the ball carrier because if that tip was given or 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 the minus was given, there's a good chance it was going to be a one man rook for Ireland because they'd gotten that bit of they'd they'd gotten that bit of gain line. Um, cut like couple that with some of the stuff they did around set piece. Like Ireland did a lot of six man lineouts, but they brought Van der Fleer in front of in front of the prop at the front, and you know if you play against Glasgow. At, at any at any stage during the year, they'll always defend that line out with five men. So it means that they're they're only going to be getting single lifts. They're only going to be getting single lifts against against the Ireland setup. Van der Fleer could come in as plus one. And then he was given he was given a short pass to Gibson Park, who's then given a short pass to to Johnny or else to uh Bundy coming short. So Scotland couldn't actually really get that line speed, you know, because instead of it being one massive long pass to, to 12 or 10 where, you know, they could really, they could really get off the line and get going. It was, it was, they had to check on Gibson Park before the second pass was given to, to the next back, you know? Yeah. So it was just, that, it was just, it was interesting to see. And that was the, that picture then in my head, that's the second try, Johnny, isn't it? That's Josh van der Fleer as a receiver out to Gibson Park, out to Sexton and just shortening up those passes. But to go back to what Mick was saying with like talking about Gibson Park and, and his role in, in Sheehan's try, but all of that, it really does point to uh, a brilliant understanding that each of those players, particularly in the back line, have for the roles of, of everyone else in the back line, where like in Murrayfield, it was the forwards where we had substitution chaos, where we had Keane Healy and Hooker and Josh van der Fleer thrown into lineouts. And this time round, you lose Mac Hansen and you lose James Lowe by half time. And I know the game was done and dusted by half time, but you've Jameson Gibson Park and Gary Ringrose as your wingers. Gary Ringrose playing wing for the guts of an hour, Stuart McCluskey coming into the centre then. There's a huge amount of changes that are happening in that back line in game. And to see the level of understanding that Gibson Park has where okay, he's made this break down the down the right touch line, but now there's space over on the far side and he's busting his gut to to get out there and just knowing what's expected of each role it's it's really really interesting to see and i'm sure as an attack coach you're probably fascinated by it yeah but i think andy farrell said it's all out like that with his selections like i think over the last over the whole world cup cycle and even like in the last year or two you've been kind of thinking oh surely he's going to pick gavin coombs or surely he's going to pick this person that person joe mccarthy has to win there and I know John McCarthy is part of the the squad and everything else, but I think like he's you can see now maybe that he's he was you know very clear in his own mind early on about you know the ability of of these rugby players. Like that's not I think Gavin Coombs can do all these roles with second row and back row and everything else, but he's obviously picked his selection based on very intelligent rugby players, and he um I think there's a bit of that in the selection of Jack Crowley as well. Like you know that if if anything happened, I think he can play in a couple of positions unfortunately Jimmy O'Brien can as well but he hasn't really gotten the selection but I'm not surprised that Gary Ringrose had that had that performance he's done that with Leinster and he's gone onto the wing and he performs yeah. really well he's just such an intelligent rugby player I think another person who 
you know, got a bit of hype at one stage. He's not getting the full hype that he should get. I, I saw people saying that he's playing poorly in at one stage in this World Cup, and I was tearing my hair out. I couldn't believe what what they were actually watching. He's he's an incredible rugby player, and it, he's the first person that I would always look at when you see Leinster Ireland games and you see like a back picture and you see the amount of ground he covers on that swing. He's um he's an incredible work rate, but his intelligence to do it is unreal. But I I was. I suppose I'm not surprised by Jameson Gibson Park. He's a, he's a ridiculous footballer, so I'm not surprised that he did it. We just haven't seen that before. So to see him putting it into action was was class. But he said in his interview afterwards that like he's trained there, you know. So they seem to have um and not to get carried away. There's a quarter final at the beginning in New Zealand and all the rest of it, and we haven't got past it at any stage. So not to get carried away with them, but they're so so impressive at this stage. If there wasn't a quarter final coming up, I think we'd be getting carried away with ourselves, being able to to boast about how impressive they are. But we're just a small bit Irish and uh, staying within our box a small bit. But they're like the, the way he performed, the way he could understand that and and everything else. I think is uh, just shows the level that they're getting to in terms of their understanding and their collective knowledge. Mick, you're not getting ahead of yourself. You're so wary of New Zealand. You're in the high vis vest today. <laughs> no safety first, definitely. Um, uh, look, I, yeah, I, I think I think it's a big test. Obviously, it's a big test this week against New Zealand. But um, there's been like some some bizarre stuff going on uh, that I've just read in the media around the the New Zealand camp as well. You know, Ian Foster is seems to have banned Scott Robertson from from going to any of the games or or linking up with with the group or anything like that for fear of uh, distraction. You know, then you obviously have have Jason Ryan there, who's who's coaching the forwards, and he's essentially Scott Robertson's best friend. You know, and there's been stuff in the past, and I don't want this to be like Gossip Girl stuff, but there's been like images in the past of the coaching box where you know Jason Ryan is visibly you know not happy with Joe Schmidt and and all all these other like weird situations. Uh, and as we all know, like everything comes from the top in in rugby and and in business like how how the top man operates is how everyone else operates in 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 rugby teams uh so like it, it would just it, it'll be interesting now to to see how those how those relationships kind of permeate down through through the rest of the group particularly going into going into this weekend yeah and the the Joe Schmidt narrative Johnny obviously is just a massive thing for for everyone this week and uh like he's been there a year. I know he was there when Ireland were were playing in the the series last summer, but he was kind of just jettisoned in as an emergency option when there was a COVID outbreak. But now you're he's 12, 15, 16 months down the line. Feet are very much under the table there, and uh, there's he has his stamp put on this team. But in general, with New Zealand, I'm I'm finding it very very difficult to get a read on them for what they are at the moment and how good they are because. Okay, they've had three massive wins in a row, but it was three wins against Namibia, Italy and Uruguay. And the Italy game in particular, I mean, it was just an embarrassing performance from Italy. And while they scored some fantastic tries, it's really, really tough to get a gauge on on, on how difficult it was for them. Similar to, we'll say, like Ireland against Romania in that opening match where um, everything just kind of came so easily to them. So... In one sense, they're playing very, very well. But on the flip side, it's it's four weeks now since we've actually seen them in a real white hot test match. I'm a bit like you. I, I can't get a read on them at all. I don't really know what they're going to do this weekend because I've seen like interviews and stuff, and you know they they're saying their structures will change. It'll become more kind of top tier test rugby. But you can't just turn that on. Like you know they haven't had it in the last couple of weeks, and 
Ireland psychologically have had everything in the last couple of weeks. They've had South Africa coming to take their their crown back and their their number one spot back. Dude, Scotland who are the like the nagging little brother of the Six Nations who can get you, but they're always only threatening to do it. You know, so I think they're Ireland have had all the psychological battles of um kind of nearly being an underdog, also being a red hot favourite and having to pull out their best game to actually play and win those up to the last last seconds of the South Africa game in, in the collapsed mall, you know. So I think New Zealand don't have that. They have 240 points scored, 20 against, gives you absolutely zero reflection on where they're at because like their connections haven't been challenged. Their their attack hasn't really been challenged in terms of having to get through structures. You know, they're, uh, when they haven't really lost their way in attack. They haven't had to, like, they, they've just gone and scored, you know. So like, um, I think that's possibly going to come back to get them. You can argue freshness and you can argue all that and we don't really know what they're about. But I just don't think you can go into the Ireland game uh, with that level played. I think the the, the Italian ninety six nil wasn't it? I think that was the that was the one where you're kind of going, oh Jesus, they're back. But when you look at what Italy, Italy did against France, Italy were chronic, and like New Zealand, they're the best team ever, ever to to be so ruthless. Like if they are going to beat a team by forty or fifty, they're going to do it by nearly hundred. You know, they're they're the best team at just keeping the foot on the throat. I don't think other teams do it as much. France didn't do it with with the Italian game. Uh, New Zealand are, are they kind of accentuate that a small bit you know so I don't think you're getting a real reflection of what they are um, and I think Ireland are going to cause them all sorts of trouble when it gets tight Yeah it, I think it'll be very much hindsight will dictate uh, the answer to it where if Ireland beat New Zealand it's because New Zealand hadn't been tested for a few weeks and if New Zealand win it's because they've had some nice confidence boosting wins in a row but but Mick to, to go back on the All Blacks and while we're not really certain what we're getting uh, well, we're not really entirely certain what's coming. What we do know is there's there are insane levels of motivation there based on what happened uh, against Ireland last summer in New Zealand, losing a, a three-test series from 1-0 up. And if there's one team in the world who are who you don't want to be playing on the rebound, it's the All Blacks, isn't it? Oh, definitely. Like, look, there's, there's obviously... There's that series um down there where Ireland did the business with which was unreal, you know. But going off going off previous World Cups, like Ireland lost, what was it, 46 14 in in the last quarterfinal, you know. So um, like don't get me wrong, brilliant to win the series down there. But Ireland are still on a bit of a revenge mission, you know, and I'm not sure. Like I'd like to think that's something that's that's gonna be mentioned this week, you know. Um because like the the hurt that would have caused the players that that were involved in that game going home uh, after another quarter final, um, it's just it's gonna it's gonna be it's gonna be fascinating to see. You'd know better than me now, Neil. But what the what the media angles are as we get further into the week, you know, um, Ireland have been I think they've they've been pretty they've been pretty good in that space. Uh, Scotland obviously had a howler in terms of saying that they were going to knock Ireland off and then, you know, not even putting their boots on to go out and play, um, aside from that long phase at the start. But, uh, I, yeah, I just think it's going to be fascinating to see what uh, what what New Zealand's angle is around motivation, aside from from losing that series and what they're going to, what they're going to put out into into the media sphere um, for all of us think, to talk into. I think on that though, isn't it, um, you know, Ireland beat them in Dublin and Ireland have beaten them around the place in, in the last couple of years anyway. And that whole thing of bringing the series back to New Zealand was, right, we'll, we'll kind of teach them a lesson or two here and Ireland still won that one. You know, so 
I think the whole New Zealand revenge piece is strong, by the way. I don't, you know, I, I'd be kind of wary of them, very wary of them actually in that revenge piece because they are that that team that do it to you. But they've already had their chance at revenge against Ireland at home and they didn't do it. So now you're starting to think, are Ireland psychologically on top of them? Or do they have another bit of a re- revenge piece despite Ireland already looking for their revenge in the quarterfinal, like Mick said? So like there's, there's such big psychological battles for us to try and tap into and see what they're, what they're really going to be talking about. But only the group themselves know you know, how they're going to deal with, how Ireland are going to deal with having beaten them away from home. Are they just going to stay on top of them? Is that their message, just stay on top? Or is it, you know, are we still talking about the quarterfinal 46-14? And New Zealand, like, you know, I think they're probably the only team in the world that would take that 2-1 loss at home as personally as they do. You know, other teams would probably just park it in the World Cup quarterfinals, the one on their minds, like, you know. So it's really hard to tell, like, who has more of the psychological advantage. But... They're both in their own heads in terms of trying to get revenge. So you should see a fairly spicy affair. Yeah, and Johnny, like you were, I know you were writing about the the psychological element of this game in your column at RT.ie uh, this morning, which people can go read it now after this uh, after this podcast is finished. They can get the full version of it. But obviously, like you did mention, Gary Keegan in it, and I I honestly can't get over. I've been following the Irish team and kind of press conferences and stuff for the last couple of years now. And I cannot get over how often, particularly in the last 12 months that Gary Keegan's name gets brought up unprompted by players or by management about the work he is doing. Um, His, his name has constantly been, been thrown out there in the media, but by and large, it is because the players are constantly referencing the work that they're doing with him unprompted and unquestioned and it is clear that this guy is having an enormous impact on the confidence levels and the the performance anxiety that was kind of quoted after the 2019 elimination um if if Ireland are to lose against New Zealand this weekend it certainly doesn't feel right now that it's going to be anything necessarily to do with performance anxiety it's probably just going to come down to to rugby skills and a better team on the day winning. Well, that's what's going to annoy me. Like if, if you know, the tragedy does happen and, and Ireland lose, it's going to be another long four years of talking about quarterfinal battling. It won't be a battling. It's New Zealand who are obviously so, so strong in, in World Cup tournaments, you know, that it's going to be just really frustrating to have to listen to that again. Um, but yeah, I think it's not going to be because of performance anxiety or, or lack of performance. If, if New Zealand beat them, it's going to be on rugby and strategy. You know, it's not going to be anything else because... Like I, I was in uh, similar circles to Gary Keegan at one stage. I, I don't know Gary Keegan at all, but he worked with Cork Hurlers while I was there. And um, and again, it was it was there's an aura about him that I I I'm trying to understand as well because like you'd see him in around the uh, the team talks on the on the pitch. He's in hanging around the back of it. He obviously has to listen to the messaging and and everything else. But um, you know, I was told from GAA like you get Gary Keegan back and and you're back. Like you know, this is the kind of effect that he has on teams. Um, but I think like what he's done with Ireland is that. You know, the sports psychology space is very interesting at the moment. Like you've, I think, you know, you've, you're changing to very positive ways of, of putting the message out there. And Ireland have certainly done that through Johnny Sexton um, going back two to three years now. Not afraid to talk about a World Cup, not afraid to talk about a quarterfinal loss. They're just confronting it head on. And I think that's part of the, the rehabilitation process for them going into this World Cup is that they're, they, they, know what they're, they know what they're taking on, you know, and they're not trying to hide from it at all and not trying to, stick to the process and all these boring things they're taking it on head on and I think that's a really interesting thing and that's probably what Gary Keegan is doing in the background just kind of filling their boots for them and teaching them how to get by when you have a little bit of um 
maybe mental anxiety or maybe a bit of a uh, an uncertainty around things. How how do you get back onto that into that winning space? Like, and it's it's going to be interesting because you know you don't see a psychologist getting that much um, airtime. They tried to stay in the background, but he hasn't been able to, despite not really being the one driving it. He did an interview this time around, didn't he? And I thought that was surprising. Uh, but again, what's the voodoo about? Why can't we speak to the psychologist that's driving the big psychological turnaround for Ireland? Like it's put it all out there and let's see where we where let's see where we land, you know. Yeah, I think if he does go and help Ireland win a World Cup, he can stick an, uh, stick a zero onto his asking price for his next job. Um Mick, what if there are any, if there are if there aren't, tell us, but are there areas in Ireland's game that you think are vulnerable to to the All Blacks? Um I, I can't I actually can't think I can't think of much off the top of my head if if I'm being totally honest like I like being a second row I'd I'd instantly start at set piece um that's where everything starts for me uh and I think you know scrum and line out wise we're we're really well set for this one I actually think I think New Zealand are in shaky enough territory around around the scrum piece you know uh getting get getting Lomax back uh is is huge for them you know because it means they can they can roll Lalala off the bench for for the last 20 30 minutes whereas previous to that it was Lalala starting and then um Fletcher Newell coming on and he he had a couple of tough days at the office um in, in terms of the line out I think it's going to be interesting to see obviously Barrett and Ritalik are world class but um you know it'll be interesting to see whether they give Whitelock a crack there um ahead of ahead of one of those lads because he's naturally he's been there done that um and then you know you've you've the you've the back row piece um is Papalihi gonna start is Kane gonna come in at seven what's what's gonna happen there I think Frizzell is he's dead set he's dead set at six for that physical piece um so that's that's something that I felt they they were maybe missing in in that French game um but in in summary unless the game gets unbelievably unstructured, uh, which I, I can't really see happening with the way Ireland have been defending up to this point, um, there's there's not a massive amount that I've seen from New Zealand so far that I think Ireland should be very worried about. Johnny, in in terms of, of selections, um who would you who would you least like to see start for New Zealand from an Irish perspective? Damien McKenzie or Bowden Barrett at fullback? No, I think Mick touching it at the start. Damien McKenzie is doing all sorts at the moment. And maybe he's doing it in the games where they're having their their own way with teams, but I just I'm so impressed with him every time I see him play. That's that's mad to say about someone like him. He's been on around the block so so much now, but he's so, so dangerous. And I think it's gonna take an attacking strategy you know, a Joe Schmidt special, like, you know, to, to put Ireland out of their comfort zone. I'm not sure Ireland are going to be put that far out of their comfort zone. When a defensive structure is set well and you're making good decisions, they can throw what they want at you and there might be a mistake or two, but in general, you don't get caught on the hop, like, you know, but like Mick said there, the the, the set piece for them is a massive piece, is a massive part for them in terms of the physicality. Maybe he'll get them over the game. Like maybe someone will miss a tackle and allow them to, allow them to get on the front foot and then the game becomes harder. Um, Will Porter get done in some scrum for for his angle I don't know it hasn't happened in such a long time we shouldn't really be talking about it anymore but it's one of those games where it's going to have to be a refereeing decision on Porter's scrum or someone getting on top of someone somewhere that there's going to be a kind of a a worried look around that pack being like what's going on you know that's what New Zealand need I think within the pack for them to get the upper hand and then I think like we saw in the in the summer test last year that 
it actually I was in, interested I saw some of it this morning it was being analysed and New Zealand used that third runner in their forward pod uh, to get a little bit of go forward on Ireland um, and that's how they disrupted Ireland in terms of getting getting go forward and getting their attack in play and and there we were thinking that Ireland were geniuses against South Africa using their third man in the in the forward pod but maybe they learned something from that test tour last year and and decided to keep that one in their back pocket as well like you know so I think it'll take something very very subtle Joe Schmidt set piece a little bit of an attacking structure to get them on the front foot and once they're on the front foot I think they'll cause any team damage it's just getting there I think is the is the is the the main part like Mick said the set piece is important everything everything flows from there stems from there. So if they can get a little bit of an edge and get a little bit of front football, then we'll see the real New Zealand. Yeah, and then just quickly, Johnny, how much of your confidence levels would be dictated on team announcement, which is actually going to be tomorrow, Wednesday, rather than the usual Thursday? How much of your confidence levels would be dictated by decisions around is James Ryan fit? Is Matt Hansen fit? Is James Lowe good to go? Lowe probably should be after getting the, the poke in the eye. But Mac Hansen, calf injury, James uh, James Ryan, uh, seeing a specialist over his wrist, the, the second wrist injury, different arms as well, uh, bizarrely in consecutive games. But how much of the confidence levels could fluctuate based on, on whether those players are fit? My confidence levels are funny anyway. I'm a pessimist when it comes to these, uh, these results. So like, I was actually, for the first time in a long while, I was like, Dare I dream? You know, like will I will I start saying out loud that Ireland's going to win it? But I think I'd be I I'd be sixty forty Ireland will win it if James Lowe, uh, Mac Hansen, uh, if they're fit and if Furlong's okay as well. I know he was kind of looking at his hamstring glute, kind of whatever he was doing. But I think they were being very cautious too, weren't they? Because the game was obviously they were in full control, so they were being quite cautious. So I think we'll like because of the fact that they are naming it on Wednesday, I would reckon they're confident enough. And I think Henderson's going to start anyway, isn't he? Um. He seemed to do the he was business. Brilliant. He's like, excellent. Mick, I, I'm sure you can appreciate what he was doing, Mick Ian Henderson. Like, because he was, you see, his try just brute, brutes his way over the line. But in the first minute, he's there with lovely little soft hands. He's holding up tacklers. He was like all action stuff from Henderson and fully justified his selection. Definitely. I thought Henderson had an excellent game, you know, particularly, particularly in that contact zone. Like, like you mentioned, there was deft touches around that, but the end, at the end of the day, playing second row, it's it's all about the contact zone. You know, that's all that, that's that's what you earn your crust off. Um, in saying that, I think if James Ryan is out, I think it's a, it's a huge, huge loss. I know Henderson might've, he might've justified, justified his selection and he could well be starting again this week. Um, I, I played with him up in Ulster. He's, he's a cracking guy, but if I was picking the team tomorrow, I'd have James Ryan starting um, for, you know, the leadership, leadership is kind of, is, is the wrong, is the wrong way to put it. But James is a, he's a perennial winner. You know, and that's not to say that, that Henderson isn't, but he's, he, he's always, he's always had good days with Ireland. You know, he had that grand slam when he was, when he was 22 in, in, in England. And, um, you know, I think I'd argue that if he hadn't come off in that Champions Cup game against La Rochelle, uh, that, that Leinster, Leinster probably would have, would have gone on to win it, you know, in, in my mind, uh, he was, he was the physical difference there. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure Henderson, like looking like when he starts, uh, this week, he'll have, he'll have another belter, uh, but personally, if I was if I was picking the team, I, I'd have I would have had James Ryan in there. And in terms of in terms of the backs injuries, 
Um, yeah, I, I, I don't really know, so I won't, uh, I won't pass too much comment on that. <laughs> you know, on the on the James Ryan Henderson thing, because that selection is so tight, and clearly you can see if there's a different coach, you can go one player or the other. That's your bench, and like, and that's the drop off to maybe someone else. You know, James Ryan and Ian, Ian Henderson are both well deserving of their start, and if if you have to deliver that bad news as a coach, you know you have the other guy coming on and a little bit kind of angry about it as well. I think that would be... Uh, so you do need... I don't mean to play that down. James Ryan is hugely important whether he starts, comes off the bench, um, to have that amount of quality coming on. And that's why, going back to your point, if you miss James Lowe, um, you know, Mac Hansen, Ty Furlong, it becomes France 2015. Is that the, was that the World Cup we lost yeah. everyone? I think this Ireland side is different. They're all up to speed. But you've just... You can be up to speed and you can know the structures and the detail. But again, there's a couple of um, very, very important people in terms of breaking things down. Mac Hansen getting on Gary Ringrose's shoulder to drag the eyes for his his dummy. James Lowe, just in general, the amount of work he does. Those players are sometimes irreplaceable. You know, wouldn't like to say that, but it, it has a knock-on effect on what comes onto the pitch and, and what's left after that as well. Like you know, so um, game breakers are they're hard to come by. Well, we'll find out whether they are going to be fit tomorrow afternoon, Wednesday. That's when Ireland are announcing their team. We'll have another pod coming up on Thursday afternoon. And a reminder, plenty of games this weekend on RT2 and RT Player. England against Fiji and France. South Africa are the two quarterfinals on RT this week. Radio commentary of Ireland against New Zealand uh, on Saturday night on RT Radio 1. And you can follow our live blogs as well on rt.ie forward slash sport or on the uh, RT News app. Um, very finally, guys, um, Portugal, we have to give them a mention as, as quick as it's going to be, but um, a win, I think that was coming in fairness to them because uh, they got that draw against Portugal and, you know, they were a, a place kick away from, from winning it and um, just having, from what we've heard, Ireland played them over, you know, kind of a little training game over in a, uh, over in Portugal when, when Ireland were having their camp there. And by all accounts, they caused Ireland enormous problems is what we've heard. So it's no surprise to to see them do so well. But Johnny, the frustrating thing is for Portugal now, is it going to be, all right, guys, pack your bags. We'll see you again in four years. Is that the frustration? Yeah. Like what do they have to build on between now and the next World Cup? I think that's the massive challenge for getting these teams up to speed, getting them proper test matches in the autumn in whatever windows that they're playing in, you know, because you can't, I know, like I think England announced their fixtures again recently. It's all the top teams like playing against each other all the time and you're kind of siloing them all together, the top five, six, seven teams and they're all playing against each other the whole time. Like, you know, so I don't know what the answers are. It's far too political and far too above my pay grade to be given the answers on the tier two countries, but they were absolutely phenomenal. I, I said that to I turn off the match at 77 minutes. What an idiot. 76. I kind of went, ah, I'll go off the bed. Uh, that's kind of it. Um, and, and Portugal proved otherwise. Like, you know, they're, the way they play the game, they're, they're actually, they look unbelievable. And like I said there with the Ireland selection, a couple of players makes a big difference. If you get a bit more experience into some of these Portuguese players, you know, all of a sudden they start driving the standards a little bit more. But like Fiji just looks so unstructured. The unstructured stuff got got to them. They didn't know where to go. They had so much ball in the in the Portuguese 22. So I think they're to blame for a lot of this as well. The fact that Portugal went down and, and got the win. But, you know, it's uh, the celebrations afterwards. I think it was everyone but Fiji really celebrating that one. Yeah, Mick, it was just great to see in general. And what I've loved about Portugal and Uruguay as well is um, not necessarily the biggest teams in the world, but just their their simple skills have been really, really sharp. Oh, definitely. And look, as you mentioned earlier with Ireland, obviously Andy Farrell said it, they've 
they've had 14 or 16 weeks together in camp and this is what's massively opened the tier two conversation more than ever in my opinion is that these lads have had they've had a huge amount of time together you know like bearing in mind that some of the portuguese players some of the uruguayan players like they they, they work in banks you know they, they work on on building sites like this is a this, this is like a part-time thing for them you know so um we can only we can only imagine how much better they'd be if it was actually something they were committed to full time. Like Johnny mentioned, they were they were playing against quality opposition on on a regular basis. And I think I think as well as that, like you know, it was, it was just heartwarming, just heartwarming. See Portugal go out, do the business, um, play really well. They've obviously got some really good coaching. I I heard that Victor Matfield was in coaching their line out for a couple of sessions and he was he was talking them up as well uh that that trick play that trick play that they scored off off a line out a couple of weeks ago uh, against wales yeah yeah that was that was victor matfield inspired from what i heard uh not to take credit away from the poor portuguese (laughs) fella who probably put it together but um (laughs) no it was great it's great to see those countries doing well and uh you know, as as Johnny said, p- politically, I'd be I'd be well out of the loop on that, but hopefully something can be done over the next couple of years to, to give them a bit more exposure to, to quality opposition. Yeah, fingers crossed. It's not the last we're seeing of uh, of Portugal for a little while, lads. I've kept you long enough. We're going nearly an hour at this stage. Johnny Holland and Mick Carney, thanks a million. Best of luck as well this weekend. Make Europe against uh, Terenor with Clontarf. Johnny up in up in Balnehinch. Am I right in saying? You are the long trip. Glamour fixture. Exactly, that's the game of the weekend. Look, get to a match on Saturday and you can uh, hang around your clubhouse and watch Ireland against uh, against New Zealand on Saturday night. What could be what could be better, maybe aside from, from being there? But listen, we'll call it a day. We'll chat to the rest of you on Thursday when we have another pod coming your way. The RTE Rugby World Cup Podcast, sponsored by Bank of Ireland.